thanks everyone for coming. The timer has started. We're going to have a lot more people coming in while we're getting started, but I don't want to leave time for questions at the end and make sure that we get to all the content. So um, thanks everyone for coming. This is the enterprise track session 201, uh, deploying Amazon workspaces in your enterprise at enterprise scale. And hopefully today what we are going to be discussing is understanding how to adopt the solution and service for large scale companies. So as workspaces grows and the functionality grows, we're going to be able to adopt and meet new use cases. Um, we're going to hopefully get into a lot of decision points and discuss why those decision points are critical for understanding when you get to, this, to the end state environment that I haven't hit many roadblocks, that I'm avoiding some of the common challenges that customers start with at large, at starting with a small scale environment and growing this to be a large scale solution in your environment. Um, we're going to contextually com compact this into a, some architecture diagrams and um, compare what we've done from our customer standpoints and what the solution can offer you along the lines of those key decision points we've talked about. Um, and the goal is really to develop a, an architecture and design that's meant to scale and meant to get you up and running and keep it as operationally efficient as possible. So the first bullet point that's kind of skipped over, we're fortunate enough to have a case study featuring a customer of ours. Um, Informa is here and they're going to present their story and the key decision points and journey they've gone on to adopt workspaces. Um, Quick introductions, Nick Frank, I'm the practice lead for mobility and energy computing at AHEAD. Um, I've been in the industry for a long time, specializing in energy computing services, so my background is traditional on-premises VDI, application virtualization solutions, Citrix, VMware, the third-party ecosystem around those solutions. So Workspaces has fallen nicely into my track and in my, um, my career path. Um, so I'm responsible for architecture, design, and implementation and solutions for uh, what we're doing with customers. And Norman Vogel from Informa. Yes. Hello, everybody. Um, my name is Norm Vogel. Um, I'm a senior system engineer with Informa. Um, I'm, I'm doing this now for five years, and I'm in, in mobility and desktop. Uh, and we concentrate on shifting our workloads from our on-prem data centers into the cloud. Um, and we're going to tell you a bit on what our story is and uh, what we've done so far and how we came to the point um, where we said, okay, we've achieved something. Really quickly, we want to touch on the company backgrounds. I think it's important to understand context when delivering these solutions at scale is, is core to what AHEAD is providing as a solution integrator. Um, we're an advanced consulting partner. Um, our engineering teams have seriously invested in Amazon solutions, architecture, design, and implementation over the past five to six years. Um, we've got over 100 certifications, Amazon certifications, and a deep team of uh, not only consultants, but implementation, architecture, and design considerations. And we help customers go from strategy and roadmap phases, which is what are the right use cases, which are the right users, how do I evaluate my long-term plans for adopting public cloud services, um, specifically around Amazon workspaces and the broader suite of services that Amazon provides. Um, then into design and plan, which is more actionable, deep technical dive around configurations, architecture considerations, um, how we're going to scale and design the solution considering use cases, who the users are, the different services that Amazon provides, and then how do we integrate this into a complete complex uh, solution. Um, and then implementation services, as I mentioned, that's really just the end of it is how do you get this up and running quickly? Um, you may have an existing Amazon ex environment. How do I integrate workspaces into that? How do I, what are the key decision points and how do I leverage that solution? So real briefly on what AHEAD does, and I know that Norman's going to give a quick introduction on Informa as well. 
Yes, uh, Informa is a uh, leading company in uh, business intelligence, academic publishing, knowledge network, and all the stuff your business needs in, in, in a sense of uh, information. We can provide these services to you. We have about uh, 7,500 uh, colleagues around the globe. We are active in uh, 20 countries, 20 plus countries. Um, we have a revenue of 1.5 billion British pound, and um, we are listed in the FTSE, uh, FTSE 100. Um, we have a, a number of brands, um, incredible large number of brands. So we are divided into uh, several divisions. Um, and um, to, to um, our strategy, I can just say that at the moment um, we did decide to go all in uh, considering cloud services. So our strategy at the moment is cloud first, and we are looking into getting everything into the cloud, and that means everything within uh, as possible uh, AWS. So, um, where do we come from? Um, we are an AWS customer. We have been uh, an AWS customer for, I would say, five years or so, even, even longer. So, um, several years ago, um, we started and we have 60% of our environment now hosted within AWS. We have, um, and, and the numbers here are, are outdated, so we actually have over 800 workspaces now up and running uh, in production. Um, not only 2008 R2, we're also bringing our own uh, Windows 10 into AWS workspaces. So we have migrated uh, also um, and make use of Office 365. Um, that is in line with our cloud strategy and making use of, of, of cloud services. Uh, as I said, we are migrating now to Windows 10 um, in, in our workspaces and our local desktops. Um, our plan is to be 100% um, on Windows 10 within the next year. Um, we are growing. Uh, organically and via acquisition, so uh, maybe you've heard of it. Uh, recently, Informa has acquired Penton, a U.S.-based um, company doing BI and um, some knowledge networking. Um, so we have a very large uh, uh, growing user population in the U.S., and um, the way that we can, um, or, or the only way that we can provide uh, access to our informal resources for our new colleagues is by providing them um, with AW workspaces. So um, what's our use case? So uh, we want to be, enable our, um, our, our users um, and, and my colleagues to bring their own device. So actually, um, if we want to have a mobile uh, workforce. So, and we don't want to manage each and every device if it's not really necessary. So bring your own device, that's the strategy for us here. Um, years ago, I was uh, lucky to be part of a project that brought up a Citrix farm in AWS. Um, and now we're shifting, even from that environment, into AWS workspaces. Um, the key 
thing to do to be successful in this is from the first moment think about automation. And we will talk about that later. Um, and also, you need uh, pretty good monitoring because you want to be proactive. You do not want to be reactive. You want to be ahead of, of, of what's coming. I think the use case overview is relevant to hopefully a lot of the customers or, or if you're considering what Amazon Workspaces can offer, to, offer you from a solution standpoint, um, hopefully this resonates. And as we make key decisions or talk through what those architecture decisions are, um, that's going to hopefully resonate and, and make it relevant to what you guys are going to be you know, uh, confronted with or, or presented with as you look to adopt the solution. So the initiative initially, again, and as Norman mentioned, they're running workspaces in production today. Um, they're also running Citrix infrastructure as a service on AWS. Um, these are consistent themes that we're hearing from customers. It's going from what Amazon provides you from their default bundle, which is a server operating system, to a true managed desktop as a service experience. And what are those key decision points is we want to, you know, answer and, and, and make sure that we're making key informed and, and responsible decisions as we scale the solution over time. Um, as Norman mentioned, we're going to talk a lot about automation and lifecycle management. So standing up a workspace and allowing users to install their own applications over time and at scale, these are going to start causing headaches for support, for lifecycle, for upgradability. Um, moving from a workspace or from an existing Citrix environment or even from physical workstations and trying to scale that solution. How do you maintain user experience? How do you get the applications that they need into their workspace and providing them what they need to get their job done as an end user? Um, those are really critical for our successful adoption of the solution. Um, always plan to fail is another key theme you hear from Amazon around this solution is how do we prevent or how do we going to mitigate risk around solutions that are going to um, Windows OS, application failures, connectivity issues, things that, you know, again, from an architecture standpoint, we're going to design a robust infrastructure. But again, think about the worst case scenario, plan for that scenario, and then answer those questions up front so we don't hit, uh, run into trouble down the road. And the difference between an AWS region and an availability zone is also critical. So availability zone provides you redundancy within a single AWS region, but from a workspaces standpoint, if I lose a single availability zone, those workspaces that were running in that availability zone will be down. Turning those back on in a different region, if that's necessary, what is the SLA, what's the RPO and RTO around those different solutions? Um, we, we like this quote from Eisenhower, plans are worthless, but planning is everything. So discussing these key decision points up front, understanding what the business model is, and if the, in the event of a failure or in the event of a service loss, um, what is the, what's the, how are we going to turn the solution back online? Yes, so this is our global footprint. So actually, Informa is active, uh, as I said, in 20 plus countries around the globe mainly in, in, in Europe and the US, but we also have um, dependencies um, down in Singapore, even in, in South America and in Africa. Um, so the decision to make use of these certain um, regions is just they are close to our um, offices or to, the, the, um, yeah, to most of our offices. And to be able to, well, bring a, a, a good performance to our users um, that are roaming through, um, for example, the United States, you always have to consider latency. That's, that's a key thing. 
So for um, PC over IP uh, thresholds for, 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 uh, for performance, um, you want to note that um, less than 100 milliseconds, that's fast. fast. 100 to 200 uh, milliseconds, somewhere in between, that is acceptable. And beyond 200 milliseconds are, um, yeah, well, it's unacceptable from a performance point of view. So you're not only accessing your, your workspaces from within your offices with hired lines. There will be users out there in the wild, meetings at the airport, at the coffee shop, at home, uh, who want to access this. That is what we're trying to achieve here, to allow our users, to allow my colleagues to be active anywhere on the globe. So, and actually, there is a, a, a health website from uh, Amazon, which is clients.amazonworkspaces.com-health, which gives you exactly the information that is not sh now shown there and um, provides you with the information of, on yeah, what is the latency to, to the next region, what's the best region. And based on that, um, you can make a decision where you want to place um, the region or which re region you want to use. And I can only, um, that's the lessons learned, uh, give you the advice, go out into the wild, make field testing, check what the latency from the different offices and also from the coffee shops and everywhere where your users are is, and then make that decision. And as Norman mentioned, the clients.amazonworkspaces.com slash health website, uh, that's an end user going to that website from their device from which they'll be accessing their workspace. So that's going to give you round trip latency to the PC over IP streaming service within the AWS region for the Amazon workspace that they would be connecting to. And this is a, just a screenshot of two AWS regions, but you're going to have all of the regions and see which regions are going to be the most appropriate for all of your users. Um, and again, depending on where they're at, that may be drastically different across different regions and different uh, connectivity types. So what we're going to show you is um, the key decisions and how did we build the VPCs and, and why. So there are different concepts. Maybe you've heard of uh, transit VPC concept, and um, there are also techniques like direct connect or features available for VPCs. Um, we will shed some light on that. Um, how did we define the subnets within our regions, um, within our availability zones? Um, how did we um, design um, our solution um, in, in the matter of Active Directory connectors and, and the network groups? And why did we decide to use application layering to manage um, application presentation? Um, that's something we, we're going to show you soon. One key point here I want to make also is these workspaces, leveraging an Active Directory connector and through the automated provisioning process, will sit on your domain. I don't know if everyone's familiar with this concept, but these machines are going to be part of your domain and you can manage them with GPO. So similar to the way that you're managing physical workstations or even Citrix or VMware or VDI solutions today, um, very seamless and, and can integrate directly to your Active Directory and authentication can take place on your Active Directory as well. And at scale, obviously, that's going to be very critical. So the VPC decision, you know, network foundation in providing this service to your users. Um, we talked a little bit about transit VPC and also direct connect VPCs. The, the key delineation there is essentially a centralized model for a transit VPC, which is from AWS in a specific region, direct connect to my on-premises uh, data center. Um, that's a dedicated single direct connect 
um, in each region. Um, and once I have that set up, then from that Direct Connect VPC or Transit VPC, um, I can say I want to have multiple application VPCs. I want to dedicate a workspaces VPC off of that Transit VPC. And then leveraging a management or shared services VPC for infrastructure components or management solutions that I'm going to layer on top of all of my different AWS services. Um, we're going to go into an architecture diagram also, but from a transit VPC standpoint, it's a single direct connect to an, a shared uh, transit VPC. Um, direct connect VPC, the concept there is all of my VPCs have a dedicated direct connect back to my on-premises data center. So the benefits and drawbacks there essentially are you know, from a transit VPC standpoint, I've got a single bill for direct connect, and I can cost control and manage up ingress and egress traffic across that pipe. Um, direct connect VPCs, I may be able to tie those to different business units if those align to different application owners, but complexity, managing more direct connects, again, the transit VPC model is simplified, and in this case, in Informa's case, it made a lot of sense to do it that way. Anything to add on that one? No, with the next one. Okay. And then into the architecture. Yeah, so that's actually the archi architecture we came up with. Um, the, the red box shows you the transit VPC. And you'll directly see that there is a direct connect endpoint that um, can have failover. So it's not a single endpoint, but if you look into the options, and I'm not explaining this in detail, if you look into the options of direct connect and how to um, establish connection to a transit VPC, um, there are methods and, and, and options to achieve failover. Within this um, transit VPC, you will have um, security appliances which allow you to create VPN gateways, um, um, sorry, VPN connections to, to, to other VPCs. And that's what we're looking now here in the blue and, and the green box. So the workspaces um, VPC here is indicated in, in, in blue. It will have several subnets to which you put your workspaces. Um, and that is something you will have to design carefully ahead because you might know that once you have set up a VPC with a certain IP range, you cannot change it afterwards. Once you have created the subnets, they have their size, they, you have done that, you cannot change this afterwards. And we're going to shed a bit more light, uh, more detail uh, later on this, but really that is something that you have to keep in mind. So, and actually what you can do here is connect this workspace VPC uh, via VPN to your transit um, um, VPC. And this architecture is then an a hub and spoke architecture. So you have in the middle always the transit VPC and all other VPCs linked to that. So additionally, you can do, as an option, peering between those VPCs. Why and maybe why not? We come to that uh, uh, in a minute. Um, just, just to give you a hint, you might not want to do this, but in certain cases, it, it, it might be necessary. So we'll see that. The only thing I would like to call out here, too, around the management VPC, again, I called out if you're running Active Directory domain controllers 
or supplemental third-party services, infrastructure that IT is going to own and maintain and manage, separating that from your workspace's VPC is a best practice. So um, something we've designed or in, in Informa has leveraged too around that shared services model, things that IT is going to own versus what is going to go in my workspace's VPC. And then on the right-hand side, we haven't just displayed that with any color, but application-specific VPCs. So those are going to be back-end application um, services that you're running in your environment. Yeah, so what we do here is within the workspaces VPC, within the transit VPC, uh, we leverage security with um, um, appliances. So we do level, level, layer 7 filtering. Um, actually, we go even further. We um, do it by um, security groups, we'll AD. So it's uh, called... Um, um, identity filtering, we come to that in a moment. And that will uh, enable you to control access to your uh, application instances um, from, from the workspaces VPC to your application uh, VPCs. Um, as I said, there is the option of peering VPCs with, with each other. So uh, you might want to be uh, careful about this and, and think this through. You only want to do this uh, where there is no content filtering required. Uh, for example, you have an antivirus uh, um, uh, system. So does the client on the workspaces, the antivirus client on, on, your, works, uh, on, on, on your workspaces, does this traffic need to go through content filtering? Probably not. So you could route this through appearing. Additionally, if you deploy workspaces into production, you will probably um, install software uh, right after deployment. So does this need to go through content filtering? It comes from a trustworthy source. It's one-way direction. So do you have to do content filtering on that? So uh, these are just examples. Um, you might think about this and then do this on your own. In the architecture diagram, we also showed VPC peering between your shared services, your management VPC, and your workspaces VPC for Active Directory services, DNS, um, all those core feature sets that every workspace is going to have access to. VPC, VPC peering is appropriate for that type of scenario. So um, that we, uh, here we come to the point, so how do we manage these applications? So um, application entitlements we do by AD security groups. So uh, once a user um, is in that specific AD security group, uh, he will be entitled um, to, to do this, uh, uh, to have access to this application. You need an orchestration tool to keep track of all that. So uh, we make use of ServiceNow. There are a lot of other tools. We can use this for uh, a CMDB ticket system and uh, orchestration. And this allows us to, to keep track on what's happening and um, yeah, have auditing and reporting for licensing reasons and compliance. Uh, therefore, we can centrally manage these applications uh, throughout the regions. Um, we can set up a central file share, put the applications there, and then um, you need to do something like either application layering or you want to do containerization, something like that. 
And we decided that we want to have uh, each application in a single VHD. Well, we want to have that. It doesn't always work that way. Uh, that, that way. Sometimes you can't do this. Then you have to think about other uh, solutions. But uh, in general, it, I would uh, say it's a good practice to, to put one single application into one VHD. And then on a per-user basis, you can decide if a user has access to this application and bind this. And uh, making use of, of an orchestration tool and um, these VHDs, um, this will provide you with, um, yeah, actually control. And uh, you will have versioning, and uh, you will have uh, everything you need to make sure that the lifecycle of your uh, application uh, is, is, is actually working and that you have rollback capabilities. One key point here also is why is this important at enterprise scale? I think a lot of customers have either started with a production pilot at small scale, 20, 30 users, allowing them to install their own applications or perhaps leveraging SCCM to distribute packages to workspaces. Um, at, at some point, the, the supportability and the challenges you're going to have from an application consistency standpoint will become problematic. So what we're saying is if you're going to know your end state is going to be a scalable enterprise solution, this becomes even more critical. And how do I manage the application lifecycle on top of workspaces, getting away from just a truly persistent desktop experience? Um, you may or may not want to allow users to install their own applications. That's up to you. But if you can leverage a layering solution, um, there was a press release a couple days ago around Liquidware Labs and application layering with their FlexApp product will be supported and available in the AWS marketplace. So um, these solutions, again, are Windows OS based, so there's not much compatibility challenge there. It's just around what's the operational model on packaging my applications, distributing them, entitling users to those, and then lifecycling those as an ongoing basis. So once I've created my application packages, and that could be a VHD file format or different application solutions, um, how do I make those available in an Informa's case across different AWS regions? So again, if I have a centralized application model, making those available across different AWS regions is critical. Um, a lot of different approaches, but Windows SIF shares are the model for presenting these types of application solutions to workspaces. So um, consider a user logs in the first time to an Amazon Workspaces in US East, um, they're going to be presented or attached different VHDs according to who they are based on those automated AD entitlements, um, say Office, uh, PowerPoint, Visio, Project, different business line of business applications. Um, we can centrally manage those and present those to users based on their AD entitlements. And then if we can make those available across a globally available file share, um, simplifying the architecture and managing those centrally is going to be what we're, what we're challenging our customers with is the simplified operational model. Again, this is more relevant as you grow your environment and as you get to the thousands of users leveraging this type of solution, um, application management is going to be paramount to success and not reaching the point where I'm individually patching or individually troubleshooting workspaces with specific application issues. Um, one other thing Norman brought up was application incompatibility. So how can I containerize applications versus natively install them or attach VHD files? Uh, all of those different services can be available from this file services, the shared file services architecture. Um, a lot of different third-party solutions can provide you on top of S3, providing this um, globally accessible file share uh, Windows SIFS-based. 
Any comments on this one? No. Okay. So design decisions, we kind of talked through the networking and VPC considerations, the application management components, um, think about the end state, planning is paramount, um, moving into implementation. So now we've got our design, we've kind of architected and designed our environment, we've identified subnets and configurations, um, what's critical for making this service solution um, operationally ready and something that we're gonna support from day one. So as again, we're gonna dive into automation specifically and talk about what you can leverage from AWS around cloud formation templates and integrating those into your service management platform. Um, so you can hand this solution off to an HR team or a hiring manager and not have a systems engineer or architect going in and individually assigning and entitling and building workspaces. Um, again, at scale, critical for success. And then how do we configure Active Directory connectors? So authentication, entitlement, getting these machines into the correct OU, um, and then separating those Active Directory connectors. Why do I need multiple of them? Um, if I've got multiple domains, these are the types of considerations that may require uh, multiple Active Directory connectors, and then what's the configuration items for those? So um, actually, we, we decided to go in several phases. So um, when we said we want to deploy workspaces, what, what are our phase one um, um, workflows that we need to cover? And the top three uh, workflows that we need to cover is of course Amazon workspace creation. So we need to be able to automatically deploy workspaces into production. As I said before, we make use of a, a certain uh, orchestration tool. Um, that's key for automation. Um, and whatever tool you use, um, make sure um, that you can automate as much as possible with one single tool. So as I said, the, the um, first uh, workflow is the workspace creation, where we take uh, an image and um, the corresponding um, set of resources, a standard workspace or performance workspace, put that into a bundle, and then we roll this out. And this is ticket-based, so a user creates a ticket, um, somebody from HR or uh, the manager will approve, and therefore approve the cost, and then in the background, our orchestration tool will automatically uh, bring this workspace up in the right region where the user is actually working, uh, we'll put this into the correct um, OU by selecting the correct uh, AD connector and uh, we'll automatically send out an email uh, with some details uh, for the user. So the second workflow um, we have there is rebuild. Um, we're talking about uh, operating systems and sometimes things just don't go as planned. And uh, the easiest thing to do is just throw it away and build it up again. So with Amazon Workspaces, you have the advantage that the user profile is redirected standard on, onto the D drive. So if you rebuild the machine, um, the data within the profile is still there. And you can take it from there. You can redirect this profile, of course, then, or make copies. So um, if you have an um, RTO or something, then, then you say, okay, that's not enough here uh, every 12 hours. Uh, I make it hourly and I copy it away into a file storage, S3 something. Doesn't matter. You want to automate that, keep track of that, 
so that whenever you have to rebuild uh, a user's workspace, uh, you do not have to waste uh, uh, hours of time uh, to manually copy profile data or something like that. And the third workflow is, of course, decommission. Um, people are coming, people are going, um, business units are bought, business units are sold. Um, that's it. So you also have to think about, okay, this is a workspace. It's no longer needed. It's no longer used. Uh, it's producing cost. So how can I decommission it? So that's also for us phase one target, and we also automated that with our orchestration tool. The one last thing I'll talk about rebuild, um, we have in there in the notes, 12-hour snapshots is what you're leveraging with a rebuild. Um, the one challenge there is you don't understand when that last snapshot was taken. So, yeah, the window might be 12 hours, but that snapshot may have been taken about an hour ago. So when I go in as an administrator into my workspaces console and click rebuild, that may only take me back an hour, and that may or may not have solved the user problem that I'm now encountering. Um, so be wary of that, and again, keep conscious decision of, is that suitable for my organization at scale, or do I need to truly back up the desktop redirect the user data, application profile, all those types of things. So if we do completely ripe out the user's workspace um, and rebuild it from our base image and layer back on the user profile, personalization settings, and applications, they're back up and running, and again, in a short time frame, but that's an extreme example of if the snapshot reversion, uh, the rebuild activity does not solve the user problem. Um, and then decommissioning. Obviously, the benefit of workspaces is cost control and consumption-based billing. So I'm paying on a m per month or per hour. Um, if the user isn't using their workspace, we want to be able to understand that and decommission that as soon as possible so we're not wasting time or money managing that or, or keeping that up and running um, when it's totally unnecessary. So how should we configure our Active Directory connectors? So let's look at the requirements. So each Active Directory connector requires two subnets. And if you think about, okay, you've spun up a, a, a VPC, um, you have actually a network range, then you think about, okay, how do I divide this into subnets? Because remember, you might want to have security appliances within this VPC to be able to VPN connect uh, the CPC to, to another VPC. So you have to do the math. You have to go into proper subnetting. So an AD connector can support two subnets, but at some point all workspaces or all IPs within that uh, subnet range will be used up, and then you will have to uh, uh, create another AD connector with two different subnets. So you need to keep track, you need, you need to keep counting how many IPs you have, and you need to automate this step. So additionally, a, a deconnector um, binds to one directory name. So we in a former have set, set, uh, several um, active directory domains. We have a, a wide forest for each and every uh, domain, you need separate Active Directory connectors if you want to put all of those into the same VPC, into the same workspace VPC. So that actually multiplies 
the AD connectors needed. And keep track, AD connectors also need an IP. So be sure that you do the counting correctly. Um, one thing I, I should mention here as well is there are certain limits um, um, that AWS uh, does provide or, or has. So actually, first time you spin up workspaces, you can, I don't know the exact number, maybe 100, you can do 100 workspaces. Uh, nobody will tell you, okay, it's just one workspace left and then you've hit the limit. Uh, you will get an error message. So day one, start counting, check <laughs> how many uh, workspaces you can deploy and take it from there. So other than that, each uh, Active Directory connector needs uh, a service account to bind or to access uh, the given domain. Keep track, don't use the same password, etc. rotate passwords, you know the drill. Um, each and every Active Directory connector can and should be configured with a base OU. So actually, you spin up a workspace, it's automatically joined into your Active Directory, and it will pop up into that organizational unit. You want to have this. You want to separate the workspaces from, from other desktops, probably. And then you can uh, do GPOs on, on, on workspaces and, and configure them as, as needed. Um, each AD domain requires a separate AC. We, we talked about that. And actually, be careful. You cannot change IP subnets after creation. So once you came up with that IP range, you're done for. If you run out of uh, IP addresses, you have to create another VPC. And critical, again, going from a pilot or a investment in just getting users up and running using the service to, again, large-scale enterprise deployment, um, define your subnets, get CIDR blocks from your networking team, plan for the end-state goal up front, and design for that up front. Monitoring. Um, monitoring for your workspaces and environment is also critical. So. As you roll these out and users experience challenges with applications, um, the guest OS, the things that a user will complain about and say, my workspace is slow, we need to have good data, metrics, and understand where the root cause is, what's causing that solution, um, what are the biggest challenges when we grow this into production, and what are the challenges that users are going to experience. So um, Amazon CloudWatch is obviously available for you guys to use. Um, Workspaces is supported within CloudWatch metrics. I can see session connect failures, session connect disconnects, um, different logins, other things that, again, are specific to my workspaces environment. That's what CloudWatch will provide. Um, above and beyond that, so from what Amazon gives you with workspaces through the infrastructure down, uh, CloudWatch can help with those specific metrics and those specific um, actions that we want to be able to understand and, and maybe perhaps trigger a Lambda function to reboot a workspace, do some automated provisioning or automated remediation. Um, from the guest operating system through the applications out to the physical device from a network connectivity standpoint, um, we need to provide metrics and support for when things happen within Windows environments. Um, critical for, again, supporting users at large scale, getting into when a user calls the help desk, getting them the appropriate metrics they need. 
Um, remote assistance is also critical. So not only just taking what the user says at face value around my workspace is slow, IE is, is problematic, understanding which application, um, seeing their workflow, and then being able to troubleshoot there. Um, and then also in-guest OS processes, so memory, memory ballooning, um, things that are problematic with executables, runaway processes, you know, a, a application pegging the CPU. CloudWatch and Workspaces isn't going to tell you as an administrator or your help desk, this is a problem, we need to solve this. Uh, those are going to be supplemental solutions that you want to integrate with your Workspaces platform to make sure that you're supporting the end users properly and that they're going to be successful. And when there is an issue, Windows is always going to be problematic, applications are always going to break. How can we quickly remediate that and not impact the users day to day? Um, how are we going to empower our help desk to do that activity so it doesn't have to go to the uh, engineering teams? And then also KPIs, so key performance indicators for workspaces. What are those key metrics that when a user calls in and they're starting to see um, keystroke lag? So I'm hitting the keys once at one at a time, but I'm seeing multiple entries. Uh, things that are going to become problematic for users and the things that are going to result in them calling the help desk. Um, CPU utilization, so per process CPU utilization, if I wanted to alert on a specific process that was running at 100% utilization for over five seconds, that's an alerting solution that I want to have internally that my help desk can then proactively reach out to the user and not wait for them to call the help desk. Um, a lot of customers and a lot of um, users leveraging workspaces today have trouble with the help desk trying to troubleshoot or get metrics around things that tools they may have for physical devices or even in the Citrix environment. That workspaces, again, I want to be able to provide that data to my help desk um, so they can quickly resolve the problem. PC over IP round trip latency, we talked about the thresholds, and these are guidelines for 100 milliseconds and 200 milliseconds, but as we get to those thresholds or if a user is on an unreliable connection, Norman mentioned Starbucks or a coffee shop, if there is a user calling in with a performance issue, if I can quickly go to a console and see your round trip latency is over 200 milliseconds, that's not something that is workspace specific. I'm going to tell them, you know, this is the amount of this is the performance you should expect when running with this network connectivity, um, and then you can have the help desk move on. It's not something that they should be troubleshooting uh, ongoing. So, PC over IP bandwidth also will impact performance. So, if a user is running uh, applications that are going to render video or I'm doing bi-directional audio, if I'm going to leverage a webcam, um, video sharing, those types of applications will drastically incre increase my PC over IP bandwidth. If that's another key, key performance indicator of if a user is consuming a lot of IP, um, a lot of PC over IP bandwidth, again, if their performance is degraded, that's the reason. I want to be able to explain to the user directly that this is why your performance is bad. Um, this is what you should expect from the, the desktop that you're using. And then memory usage. Um, we hear a lot of customers that have leveraged a value desktop for a lot of users because it's the cheapest that may not always warrant itself or be successful with users that need more resources, more memory, more CPU. I need to be able to respond to those types of incidents or uh, be able to right-size their desktop experience based on who they are, the applications that they're using, and then what they need from a workload standpoint. Um, and then Reporting and alerting. Alerting is great. Reporting is great. We need both types of data to be able to do proactive and reactive monitoring. So when a user logs in, they're going to be able to use their workspace successfully, and we can communicate out to users when there are issues. And then also when they call in, I need to be able to present my help desk or engineering teams with good data so they can quickly get the user back up and running. So we've went through a lot of different decision points, and hopefully the life cycle 
or the initiate or the the process that we've walked through here from design, key decision points, um, understanding what's critical for running these solutions at scale, through implementation, um, how do I configure things, the Active Directory connectors in my VPC architecture, and then through the implementation planning and getting the solution up and running at scale around monitoring, automation, uh, lifecycle, all of those things are extremely critical. So you know, we can go into some lessons learned and talk about this. Um, we're going to go into some Q&A here in a second also, but if you want to give a current status and talk a little bit about your successes and roadblocks and challenges you've experienced too, but that would be great. Yeah, actually, uh, quite a few were, um, I told you about that. So uh, actually, when you do um, Active Directory connectors, if you have uh, several Active Directory domains, do your subnetting correctly. Yeah. Um, keep track or, or, or keep, keep open, open IP spaces. Don't throw all the subnets you have directly into the fold because at some point the use case might change for certain user groups and you might want to set up a separate AD connector for a certain user group, let's say developer, DevOps, whatever, um, so that you have those guys for whatever reasons in, in a different subnet with a different connector to a test dev Active Directory or something like that. So you want to take a large IP block, as, as large as possible, to be able to react. And, and don't provision everything directly. You can break it down into several subnets, but keep subnets in spare for later use. So, and actually, we're going ahead, and um, we have created a VPC in, 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 in Ireland um, for Continental Europe uh, workforce. And we are going to roll out until end of year um, a VPC for, for the US uh, and US East. Uh, and additionally to that, uh, the roadmap shows that we will roll one out in, in Singapore as well. Going everything as, as planned, we'll have something like 60 to 80 percent of our workforce on AWS workspaces end of next year. Thank you. And also, conclusion wrapping up, um, if there are things specific to your rollout or if you're thinking about the solution, um, Norman and I are going to be taking questions here in a minute, but if you want to head down the AHEAD team, uh, Norman, myself, will be able to answer questions specifically about your environment or challenges specifically that we didn't touch on. Um, those types of things include tagging, how do I tag a workspace to a specific business unit, to a cost center, um, automation and capabilities around that, ServiceNow integration. So if you're a ServiceNow customer, how does that work? Um, but we're here for the next about 10 minutes. If anybody has any questions specific to your environment or topics we didn't cover, we tried to include a lot of decision points, but I know there's a lot more.